the world is, well, a topsy-turvy place and nowhere more so than in the US where it uh, seems that after generations of fighting segregation, coloured kids are being separated in schools. Only this time it's by their black teachers. Now, it's not just black kids either. The uh, trend is being called progressive separatism and children of all backgrounds across the country are being encouraged to think of themselves as, uh, well, as racial beings. On the other side, the backlash against so-called wokeness has uh, even seen the uh, British PM apologise, or appoint rather, an anti-woke minister. Now, my next guest uh, questions how helpful uh, such... uh, such ideas are in the progress towards a fair and more equitable society. His name is Yasha Munk, and Yasha is the author of The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our times, and it's published by Penguin. And he joins me from France. Yasha, you open your book with a story that, well, beggars belief. Tell me what happened at Mary Lynn Elementary School. Yes, so uh, this is one of the moments that really shocked me when I was researching this book. I spoke to a woman called Kyla Posey, who is an African-American educator living in the suburbs of Atlanta. And she has two uh, kids who go to elementary school. She asked the principal of her school whether she could uh, choose a particular teacher for them. The principal said, of course, go ahead. She sent in the name of a teacher that she thought would be best for her kids. Um, And uh, suddenly the school sort of changed its tune and kept demurring and saying, look, perhaps there's this other teacher, this other classroom that would be right for your kids. And eventually Kyla got frustrated and said, what's going on here? Uh, And the principal uh, told her, well, you know, the thing is, that's not the black class. Your kids should really be in the black class. Um, Now, that sounds like a story of old-fashioned segregation in the south of the United States uh, until you learn that the principal is is herself a black woman who is, as you were mentioning in the introduction, uh, deeply convinced of a new set of uh, uh, supposedly progressive ideas about pedagogy, ideas that now inspire schools across the United States to separate kids out at the age of eight or seven or six for part of their school day into uh, groups of black kids, of Asian-American kids, of uh, Latino kids, and and, and of white kids. Ideas that are trying to encourage these students to think of themselves as strongly as possible in racial terms. Now, this notion, this notion of uh, progressive separatism, escapes the classroom and can even be extended to decisions about whom to prioritise for life-saving drugs? Yes. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm a political scientist and one of the uh, public documents that I'm most struck by is one produced by the ACIP, the key advisory committee to the famous Centers for Disease Control in the United States, when they had to figure out how to distribute uh, scarce, life-saving anti-COVID vaccines. So when we finally got those important vaccines, uh, we didn't have enough doses of them for everybody to be eligible immediately. And most countries, including, I believe, Australia, uh, prioritized the elderly because all of the 
studies showed that, uh, you know, the older you were, the higher uh, at risk you were of this disease, and it really increased exponentially. Well, ACIP considered that possibility. It found that according to the CDC's own model, embracing that possibility would save thousands of lives. And then it said, we can't do that because elderly Americans are disproportionately white. So it suggested giving the vaccine first to a much broader set of essential workers. And this had really disastrous consequences because the political jockeying as to who counts as an essential worker immediately began. Um, you know, movie producers in LA were considered essential workers. Finance executives in New York were considered essential workers. I, as a professor in the state of Maryland, was considered an essential worker, even though I was teaching all of my classes by Zoom. Uh, and in the end, I assume that it actually killed more non-white Americans as well, because if you give, you know, a vaccine to two 25-year-old Latino Uber drivers, rather than one 80-year-old Latino retiree, more Latinos are going to die as well. But isn't it important to make decisions about who is the most vulnerable? We know, for example, here in Australia that our Indigenous folk were much more likely to be hit hard by COVID than, say, a, well, a middle-class white person. There's two important things here. First, in the United States, over the course of a pandemic, that turned out not to be the case. There were some non-white groups that were at uh, lower risk of mortality from the beginning, including Asian Americans, who ended up being favoured in many of the state schemes. And actually, uh, uh, over the course of the pandemic, white Americans were as likely to die as any other ethnic group, in part because they had less pickup for the uh, vaccine. Uh, the second important thing that he said there is a middle-class white person. One of the things that has fallen out of this uh, analysis completely uh, is the question of class, um, which we no longer look at uh, in those settings in most contexts. And so, uh, you know, I think that we need better medical provision for people who are poor, for people who live in rural areas, for uh, people who have historically been uh, less able to access medical care. I'm completely in favor of considering those as risk factors. But to think that the color of your skin is either the thing that causes higher risk uh, or that it is the thing on which we should decide between citizens is doubly wrong. It is wrong medically because it is not your skin color that puts you at higher risk. It is those other factors like your social class, which we can take into account. And it is wrong politically because it sets us up for a zero-sum game in which members of different groups think that they have to compete each other with each other for political power, for resources, even in these kind of life and death situations. That's ultimately my worry as well about uh, the context of that, of that school. You know, why am I so worried about putting white kids in a different group and telling them to, quote-unquote, own their whiteness, as one school put it? It's not because... They might be uncomfortable. I think it's fine to be uncomfortable in your education sometimes. It's because everything in history and social science teaches us that once you think of this group as my group, you're going to be fighting for their interests and you're going to be capable of great cruelty towards the outgroup. So you're likely to create more racists through these kinds of practices than anti-racists. Now, these ideas seem to be an extension of affirmative action in the workplace. Is that the case? Well, uh, they are a little bit different. Um, affirmative action has been there for a long time. Its original purpose 
was as a kind of form of reparations and the recognition that these groups had been uh, incapable of, of accessing uh, opportunities uh, for a long time because of the injustices they suffered. And so you want to make sure that even if uh, a student, for example, had gone to a very bad high school where we didn't have uh, the resources to learn in the right way, they were a really talented kid, they would still be able to go to college and, and develop their talent. So I think the logic of that was was a little bit different, but I can see that there's some connections. Young people, uh, young progressives talk about uh, what they are and uh, aren't entitled to, and there's uh, some mentioning of uh, bloodlines, which sounds a little scary, like Nazism. Well, I think in, in general, one of the things that puts me off this new ideology as somebody who uh, comes from the left, who's been on the left all of my life, who made my career warning about the threat of right-wing populism in the United States with people like Donald Trump and around the world, uh, with people like Narendra Modi in India and uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary and, and other figures, is that it actually has some real similarities to right-wing thought. When I was growing up in Germany, it was the right that was worried about foreign influences on German culture. That was, that was trying to preserve the purity of German culture. And today it is often progressives who worry about cultural appropriation, who think that we should um, draw these very clear lines around what is your culture and what is my culture and under what circumstances it is permissible for me to take inspiration from the cultural artifacts or products produced by a different culture. I think often this ends up being a progressive paint job on ideas that, that are tribalist and that actually have historically animated the political right. Yes, yeah, so you and I belong to the left and traditionally being on the left was about, well, saying people should not be uh, defined by religion or skin colour or other factors like gender or sexual orientation. But this idea of universalism has now been replaced by intersectionality. How did that come about? Yeah, one of the things that really strikes me about this is that to me, we need to preserve the ability that we can understand each other, that we can exert real political solidarity with each other across political uh, lines, across ideological lines, across, most importantly, identity lines. And uh, that latter claim is what this ideology uh, rejects. It says that if you stand at a different intersection of identities than me, uh, then I'm never truly going to understand you that uh, since I might not make the experience as a man of being sexually harassed or uh, as a white person of fearing police violence, I'm simply not going to be able to understand your experience. And therefore, I need to delegate my political judgment to you. I need to say whatever it is that you demand as a member of a more marginalized group, I defer to the spokespeople of your group because I can't really understand what you are saying. I think that this is uh, profoundly wrong. It is true that I might not experience sexual harassment. And so I need to have an open mind. I need to speak to my fellow citizens. I need to ask them about their experience. I need to empathize with them. I need to resist the urge to say, well, I don't know. I've never experienced this, so I'm sure what you're saying is not true. No, I have to understand that we're going to have different experiences. But then I can actually understand the politically relevant elements of that. I can say, hang on a second. It is unjust that you have to worry about taking the subway at 10 p.m. when I can 
safely take it at that time. And that can be the basis for a much more ambitious form of political solidarity. Because when I can say, it's against my vision of society that you should be more constrained in your mobility than I am. I am fighting for my own political reasons because of your own vision that I have for the society I want to live in, uh, for a state of affairs in which you uh, don't have to be afraid of taking uh, public transportation any more than I do late at night. My guest is uh, Yasha Monk. Yasha, the culture wars have been a battle cry for uh, those on the right. Were you worried in writing your book that you might inflame what is already in, well, a very overheated debate? Um, you know, obviously, I, I, I thought about that risk. Um, I, I think sometimes, uh, you know, writers and journalists uh, think that they have uh, more control of a conversation than they uh, actually do. I can feel a tendency among some of my fellow journalists to say, you know, if there's something that it's uncomfortable to talk about, if only we ignore that topic, people are not going to realize. Uh, but I think that that's not taking the public seriously enough. They understand when there's a problem and they understand when certain ideas have gone off the rails. And I think having somebody formulate the critique of those ideas uh, on the basis of the values of liberal democracy, on the basis of a genuine desire to remedy injustices and make a, a more fair society, um, gives them a political home, stops them from the temptation of being drawn to the reactionaries who otherwise would be the only ones who formulate those critiques. Uh, more broadly, it is true that superficially, these ideas seem to be in competition with those of a populist right. But in practical political terms, I actually think that one of them ends up supporting the others. It is in good part because of the hold that these ideas now have over many of our mainstream institutions that in the United States, for example, Donald Trump is running head to head, perhaps actually leading Joe Biden in many polls for 2024. One of these is the yin to the other's yang. If we want to defeat genuinely dangerous right-wing populists like Donald Trump, we also have to fight against the ideology that is undermining trust in our public institutions and in more moderate political parties. I'm reminded of a chat I had earlier this year with the British Indian author Keenan Malik, who argued that uh, while identity politics has a well, that identity politics has arisen in the power vacuum left by the collapse of a class-based politics. You've already suggested the same thing. Yes, um, I, I think that is certainly a, an important part of the story. That for a hundred years, you know, the left was animated uh, by class, by economic concerns, and that it had a very powerful state to to look to as an incarnation of that, a very imperfect incarnation of that, uh, uh, one that uh, uh, did not make the world a better place, but but that nevertheless upheld the prestige of Marxist and post-Marxist ideas and was the Soviet Union. So when the Soviet Union fell, I think a lot of the left felt disoriented, didn't know how to formulate class concerns in the 90s. And this was the moment when this rising set of ideas, whose history I chronicle in my book, In the Identity Trap, by the way, um, was really able to take over. These ideas had started to take shape 
Earlier, they are rooted in postmodernist thinkers like Michel Foucault and postcolonial thinkers like Edward Said and Gayatri Spivak, who had done the bulk of their work by the time the Soviet Union fell. But it was the, the loss uh, of uh, uh, that class-based form of politics that created the vacuum, which would end up being filled by what I call the identity synthesis. What's at stake here if we don't examine these issues deeply and as much as possible dispassionately? Well, I think what's at stake is our ability to sustain a successful, uh, diverse democracy in Australia as much as anywhere else. Um, I'm not against all forms of identity-based politics, which is to say that we have historically had movements which mobilized victims of injustice, partially around identity lines, which improved the world. Whether you're thinking of the Black American tradition from Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King Jr. to arguably Barack Obama uh, fighting for equal rights for African Americans, or whether you think of a gay rights movement, which has been phenomenally successful in our lifetimes in uh, improving the acceptance of gays and lesbians and winning important uh, social institutions like same-sex marriage. The difference is that those movements were universalist in nature. Even as they organized victims of injustice, they were saying, we want to be included in these universal institutions. Frederick Douglass in his most famous speech said that his fellow citizens were hypocrites for talking about the idea that all men are created equal while tolerating slavery in the United States. But he didn't say rip up the constitution because it's hypocritical. He said, make sure that you fight for our equal rights. If you're serious about these ideas, you have to treat us the same way. When you talk to the early advocates of same-sex marriage, they emphasized that their first fight was within their own movement, within people who wanted to reject the idea of marriage as a terrible bourgeois institution. They said, no, the problem is not with the institution of marriage, the problem is that we're being excluded from it. The people who make up this modern tradition, in particular the founders of critical race theory, explicitly rejected this vision. They said that our institutions are so flawed that we haven't been able to make any progress, and therefore we need to rip them up. We need to make how we treat each other in society and how the state treats all of us explicitly depend on the kind of identity group into which we are born. I think that that is the wrong prescription for how to overcome injustice and build a better society. Yasha Monk, thank you very much. Yasha is the author of The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time, published by Penguin. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations, live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.